Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. Broadcasting once again from beautiful, sexy, steamy Studio City, California, this is The Knapsack Files. And I'm Ken Knapsack, the host of this show. And, well, we're back for a little mini-sode. Sorry, we're still technically on a unexpected hiatus. Uh, the last full episode we had was uh, Roger Craig Smith and Mark Riley, the editor-in-chief of SchmoesNo.com. We were over at Roger Craig Smith's house, one of the best voiceover actors in the business right now. We had a great episode, and burgers were made, hot dogs were made, and we podcasted out on a uh, enclosed patio that was a gorgeous setting for a great episode, one of my favorites I recorded. I had some other ones planned, but things have gotten a little busy. Uh, as those most of you know, I am the producer of the Schmoes No Movie Podcast podcaster, as it's kind of called now, the Schmoes No Movie Show. That's because we've begun phase five of the podcast and moved locations from Toad Hop, where we're grateful for the uh, year plus we had there. It launched our show into what it is today. We're forever grateful for Toad Hop Studios and uh, the Toad Hop Network. Uh, but we moved on to phase five of the podcast, and that is now at After Buzz TV Studios, which is Maria Menounos and Kevin Undergaro's studios over... Um, in Los Angeles, and uh, well, if you if you're watching the show, it's it's hard to say it's a it's a podcast anymore. Really, it's a live internet TV show every Thursday, six to eight p.m. PST, with an audio iTunes uh, podcast component, and we're trying to get that on other platforms too. So don't worry about that. Um, so it's been real busy getting that off the ground. So I haven't had time to sit behind the microphone to talk. Uh, I won't talk about myself like some kind of jerk. I've uh, been busy producing the podcast and, of course, doing the news since we've been back up and running. And there's a lot of great things to come from this arrangement. We hope to announce some of that soon. So if you're listening to me for the first time and you've come over from the Schmoes No, uh, Schmoville, as it were, uh, thanks for joining. And please, there's a big backlog of episodes of the Knapsack Files, and we do things a little differently here. It's a conversation about life, the universe, and everything Douglas Adams would approve. Um, this week on the show, I, I I got time for a little mini-sode, and I wanted to share something with you guys that just turned 38 at the time of this recording that was just this past weekend. And prior to that, I got the chance to perform in a storytelling show, one of the longest-running storytelling shows in Los Angeles. There's a lot now and a lot claiming to have great influence, and they are. They're great. Some of my friends run those shows, too. But uh, this one's been going for, uh, well, nigh on 15 years. It is uh, co-produced by Beverly Mickens, Dan Farham, Tony Figueroa, and some others that have a great hand in getting this going. It's currently every Wednesday at the Art Parlor, which is in North Hollywood. Uh, beautiful little uh, art studio there. So go on and check it out if you're local. Um, but they just recently started up a series that Dan Farron had, had done years ago called Comedy Callback. And Dan produces that show. It was on a Friday night. And the show's going to be back monthly. And again, if you're local, check it out. Go to storysalon.com to find out more information. And uh, you can go catch Story Salon or Comedy Callback. Comedy Callback is stories about stand-up comedy by stand-up 
comics. A lot of people love comedy. A lot of people love comedians. A lot of people are fascinated with what goes into being a comedian and what you get to experience. Like a lot of things, people just like behind-the-scenes stories. So I got the chance to perform. I should say chance, well, I should say it was forced by my good friend Dan Farron. I, I stopped doing stand-up about four years ago, uh, not counting the live airwaves over in Schmoville. I really haven't performed in front of a live audience in a long time, unless, of course, you count professional wrestling, which I think I, I will, but it's a different animal. So Dan told me, hey, I got a show on April 11th. You're going to be in it. That's all I had. So I had to get a story together to talk about my time in stand-up comedy. And, well, I, I don't like to toot my own horn, and I definitely don't pat myself on the back. Probably enough, my therapist would tell you. Um, so I wanted to share this with you. It was a great experience. My good friends came out to support me. It was a great crowd. I got to meet one of my uh, all-time favorite stand-ups, Rich Scheidner, who was there, performed as well. You may recognize him or remember him from the opening scene in Roxanne, where he and Kevin Nealon are beat up by Steve Martin with a tennis racket. Uh, so it was a great night, and I figured... Well, what the hey, I'm going to share it with you. And I'm going to be the type of person that says, what the hey, instead of what the hell. Uh, this is a little story I told. It's a little insight into what it was like being a stand-up comic for almost 10 years. So please, enjoy it, and check out StorySalon.com for more. And also tweet Dan Farron at RealDanFarron, and tell him I sent you from this show. So here it is, a story I got to perform. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Dan. Uh, I'm definitely uh, nervous about doing this kind of uh, entertainment. I'm used to uh, performing in front of drunk crowds everywhere. But uh, Dan uh, um, told me before the show, he said, just have fun, which is what you don't tell a comic. Because if, if I wanted to have fun, I would have been a garbage man. <laughs> so I'm Ken Nassock. I'm a recovering stand-up comic. I feel I should say that. Right? <laughs> Stand-up comedy is my most favorite thing to hate. Uh, which is to say, I love it with all my heart, and I hate myself for it. Yeah. I started performing stand-up comedy uh, on March 23rd, 2003, in the belly room of the world-famous comedy store. It was dark, it was dank, and it smelled like 1977 cocaine. It still does. You indeed. I started because I was told stand-up comedy, as opposed to its light, fun, more cheery uh, counterpart sketch comedy, would better lead me to fame, respect, and a career. My voice would be heard. I just didn't realize that there was a lot of other voices out there with me. But anyways, I jumped in, I prepared my jokes, or rather began to prepare my jokes, which is one of the hardest things to do in comedy, that, that first set of bits, that first joke, that first organized thought. Because you spent your whole life being one of the funniest people in the room. You talk, people laugh. That's one of the reasons it's always been, and that's one of the reasons you're going to get into stand-up comedy. The other reason is you're lonely. <laughs> But here you are, you're trying to focus all your humor that's been swirling around your head, all those, what's the deal, beats that have kind of ruled your life and filled your life, they're just waiting to be poured out of your soul and, and get you a half-hour special. It's all there, right for the taking. But after five hours of staring at a blank page, the only thing you've come up with is, uh, do we have any uh, cat owners in the house? <laughs> and it is then that moment that you realize that stand-up comedy is not just about being funny. It is an art. It is a job. It is a purpose. It is work. It is a science. 
and it is most definitely a burden. <laughs> and one that never goes away. No matter how many times you drive it out into the wilderness and shoot it in its dumb head, it will always come limping back to you. <laughs> after one of my, uh, side note, what, after one of my numerous retirements from stand-up comedy, one of my comic pals said to me in all sincerity, what makes you think you're the one that's going to get away? But back in March of 2003, that was, uh, that was all far off, yet to sink in. I was naive and hopeful, ready to collect my writing deal in a sitcom. Oh, so naive, so pure of heart. <laughs> Side note, uh, also when I started stand-up comedy, I had not tasted alcohol. I was sober by choice, long story, has to do with Jesus, but uh, <laughs> now I can name you 15 different kinds of Irish whiskey. <laughs> slug out my first set of jokes and put them on paper. I, I rehearsed my bits to a blank wall in my small bedroom. Uh, and I even, in the audacity of youth, I even inserted pause points where I knew the audience would be laughing. <laughs> Never been on a damn stage, but I was sure I knew where they were going to laugh. In fact, uh, when I timed my first set alone at home in my room, I inserted a spot for an applause break. <laughs> You can imagine, just to be clear, I was so sure that the audience was going to break into spontaneous clapping because of their appreciation of my jokes that my set would have to be stopped. What kind of asshole is the mindset of youth? I had no idea at the time that that disinterested and aloof silence of my bedroom wall was probably a more exact approximation of the audience's reaction. As it would be when I performed for a drunk, weary crowd of gamblers at a casino in the Inland Empire, so devoid of joy I feared I never would smile again. As it would be when I performed at a dive bar in Palmdale that was shut down a week after I performed there because of a double murder. And it wasn't so much the murder as it was that it had happened again. As it would be when I performed at a biker bar in Corona, California, in which the rough regulars treated me like I was Pee Wee Herman trying to ask the Hells Angels to be quiet because I was trying to use the phone. As it would be when I performed at an open mic in Westwood filled with the worst kind of audience members imaginable, stand-up comics. <laughs> that silent blank wall in my bedroom gave me more love as a performer than the people of Hermosa Beach one night when they seemed really angry that they had to stop their game of billiards because six dudes from Hollywood were about to tell them jokes about their lack of sex. <laughs> That bedroom wall gave me more love than an intoxicated member, audience member at a show in Santa Monica that charged the stage in the middle of my set and started to fight me for the microphone. I was in the middle of a bit, I guess it wasn't going that good, the self-loathing wasn't hitting, I was making one too many references to men are like this and women are like this, and he got up and charged the stage and, uh, you know, um, 
This man felt the undeniable urge to charge his age, grab the microphone, and fight me for control. And as we battled, and it was a battle, tugging and pulling back and forth, jockeying for control of the microphone like it was that horrible knife fight scene in Saving Private Ryan. Corporal Upham's waiting on the stairwell, and he's going, shh, shh, putting the microphone into my heart. We fought, we struggled. And as I felt myself losing my grip on the microphone, I thought to myself, why do I do this? Why did I punch my way through two hours of traffic to get to this show tonight? A show located in a dirty bar across the street from a shabby hotel that rented rooms by the hour. Why did I sit in my room working hard on my jokes? Why did I get on stage to perform in front of ten uninterested people, two of which that had been there since 3 p.m. because they just started drinking and they didn't want to leave? <laughs> Why do I subject, subject myself to the constant judgment of an audience? Why do I let my entire existence hinge on what strangers think of me in a small seven-minute chunk of time? Why, why, why? <laughs> By this time, the crazed man had successfully wrestled control of the microphone away from me. It was his now, not just the microphone, but the stage time. And he didn't even have to bring people. He had the audience. He had the moment. And what did he choose to do with that moment here? This is historic. An audience member finally had the chance to be funnier than the person on stage. This is historic. This is history. What did he do with that moment? Well, he put his mouth over the microphone, not up to it, over it. And he said, <laughs> And he got more laughs than me. But eventually, eventually I even laughed. He gave me back the microphone, satisfied and complete, completely convinced that he had made the right life choice. I finished my set, and actually at one point made them laugh. He had successfully loosened up the audience. He was my opener, as it turned out. And all was forgiven. And I realized right then that this is what it's all about. The laughter, not just getting laughs, not just making people laugh, not just the misplaced desire to glean some sort of personal validation from making others laugh. Uh, and to be clear, that is certainly part of it. Make no mistake, nobody in their right mind would ever subject themselves to this. If you pick up a microphone, you're already lost. <laughs> but this is about creating a moment, sharing a thought, expressing a point of view, and taking something from your life and making it a shared experience. And why a comic may still leave the stage wondering from the depths of his soul if he was good enough. And there's that nasty validation thing again. This, this stand-up comedy, is about pure, unadulterated moment of making another human feel joy. Of making them forget about their bad day, their bad week, their tough life. If you perform comedy long enough, at one point someone will say to you after a show, thanks for making me laugh, I needed that. Not I wanted to laugh or was good to laugh. I needed that. And it is no mistake that the first emotion people want to feel following a tragedy of any kind on any level seems to revolve around laughter. I just want to laugh again, they say. It felt good to laugh again. And we get to make that happen. That's why we do it. And that's why I love it. Flashback to that first night, March 23rd, 2003, at a packed-to-the-walls bedding room, my first set, the one that we would be followed by years of struggles and doubt. The one set that would be followed by many, many failures. Flashback to that first set, my first set as a stand-up comedian. And I killed. Yeah. I destroyed. I even 
got an applause break. <laughs> I got a laugh on my first punchline, the first one I ever wrote, and every other until the end of my set some seven minutes later. Now in the years since, I've tried to kill myself twice. I've been in therapy for five years, going on more. I, I've gone to bed some nights so convinced of my failure as a human being that I've gone beyond tears to just resignation. But seriously, it's okay. It's fine. Because I know that I have made people laugh. Even if that's the only thing, I have made people laugh. I've given my point of view, I had my voice heard, and nothing can take that away. My stand-up comedy career ended in February 2010 in front of six people in a bar in Oxnard. I did not receive fame, I did not receive respect, and I most certainly did not receive a career. Instead, I got a lifetime of memories, a lifetime of fulfillment, and a lifetime's worth of connection, support, and friendship. What a ripoff. <laughs> So there you have it. The story got to tell over at Dan Farron's comedy callback show, uh, part of the Story Salon series over there at the Art Parlor. Uh, Dan Farron produces that show along with Beverly Mickens, Tony Figueroa, who provided me the video and audio. Thanks, Tony. And uh, check out uh, their website, storysalon.com, for more information. they got some stuff there on that uh, website, blogs, stories, uh, links. And uh, check them out every Wednesday if you're local in L.A. Uh, they got the story over uh, – they got the show over at uh, the Art Parlor in North Hollywood. So uh, I know the story got a little dark, but it's a good, it's a good, happy ending. And I loved my time in stand-up comedy just as much as I hated it. And maybe one day again, I'll dust off the old joke book and get it back on stage. If Mark Ellis of Schmoes Now has anything to do about it, I, I guess I will. Uh, he has uh, made one of his projects to get me back up on stage. So um, that is that. We'll be back with uh, full episodes with a great lineup of guests, including Mark Ellis is coming back from Schmoes No and a wonderful episode that he has been bugging me to do and he's been planning to do. He is going to reverse the table and interview me on the Knapsack Files. We're gonna, we were going to do it for my birthday, but our, our schedules got busy. Again, that Phase 5 of the Schmoes No podcast has us, has us busy. Uh, but that's going to happen soon and uh, we're, we're going to see how what happens there. It should be crazy. So do us a favor. You can find us on Podomatic and Stitcher, but also if you're on iTunes, find us there. Subscribe, rate, and review the show. If you're on Twitter, follow me at Ken Napsock, N-A-P-Z-O-K, hashtag The Napsock Files to join the conversation. We also are on Facebook. Look for The Napsock Files fan page there. Click a like, and that helps us a lot too. So until next time, Please go out and make somebody laugh. We will see you next time.